0: Many of us, I think, have misplaced fears. So there are things that we should not be fearful of, but we are fearful of them. We saw this demonstrated this week. People fearful maybe of election results. Maybe you are fearful of the opinion of other people. Maybe you are fearful of failure. There's really no good reason for those kinds of fears, but we have them. There are also things that we should be fearful of that we're not fearful of. You all, without exception, in one way or another, should. Fear God. Every single one of us in one way or another should fear God today. Psalm 33 8 says, Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the earth Fear the Lord. And at the end of Ecclesiastes, Solomon writes, Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. So, regardless of what we might believe, it is clear that the Bible believes. That every single one of us, without exception, should fear God. So, why don't people fear God? That was one of the things we looked at last week. We do not fear God because we do not. See straight. We don't see ourselves rightly. We don't see God rightly. And because of these wrong views of myself and these wrong views of God, the ocean that exists between people and God looks more like a puddle. To us. But there is an ocean that rages between God and sinners like you and me. And we don't see that ocean that rages between us and God if we don't perceive our sinfulness. And God's holiness. So we cannot downplay our sin. But we have a tendency to do this, to shorten the distance between us and God. We downplay the holiness of God, He's not really that good. Or we downplay our sinfulness. I'm not really that bad, but we have to know. We have to know, this is one way of saying it, the sinfulness of our sin. We've got to know that. Do you know how sinful your sin is? If you and I don't understand how we've offended God, if we don't understand the trouble that we're in as sinful people before a holy God, then nothing in this Bible makes sense. The gospel will not make sense. Good news will not be good news. Being told we need to be saved, saved from what? if we don't understand the depth of our sinfulness. Sin is, it's one way of thinking about it, sin is disregarding, disbelieving, disobeying, and dishonoring the holy God who has made you and lovingly required you to worship Him. So, sin is disregarding, disbelieving, disobeying, and dishonoring a holy God who has made me and made me to worship Him. And every single one of us has said no to God. Charles Spurgeon said, Sin is a defiance of God to his face, a stabbing of God so far as man can do it to the very heart. Sin is a monster, a hideous thing, a thing which God will not look upon and which pure eyes cannot behold but with the utmost detestation. So we are doing our best through this short sermon series, through this study of God's word to see straight, to get everything in the light and see it for what it is. So to catch us up, or if you weren't here last week, we looked at the terrifying fear of God. We looked at the terrifying fear of God. And I hope some of you left here as Habakkuk describes it with a feeling of rottenness in your bones and trembling legs beneath you. While every Christian should not abide in that terrifying fear of God, every Christian must know that terrifying fear of God. That terrifying fear of God that you get when you consider your own sinfulness and the holiness of God and His judicial obligation. And if you think about that, you will be terrified. So if I see straight my own sin against God, and I see straight his righteousness and holiness, that he is a good king, that he is a good judge that must deal with sin, the result is that I'm going to be terrified before that God. So we all need to understand our sin and God's holiness. We all need a doctorate in that, if nothing else. Adam, in the very beginning of your Bible, he perceived his own sinfulness and God's holiness, and so he ran and hid from God. Isaiah perceived it and said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Peter perceived it as he crumbled in the boat at the feet of Jesus and cried out, Depart from me because I am a sinful man. And John perceived it. And when he did, he, according to Revelation 1.17, fell at his feet As though he were dead. Terrifying fear of God. And all knowers of God know this fear. This morning we will look at the saving fear of God. Let's look at the saving fear. Fear of God. I mentioned it last week, but we'll elaborate today. And again, repeating what I said last Sunday, here is an overview of where we're going in this short four week sermon series. Last week, in part one, we looked at the terrifying fear of God. This morning, in part two, we will look further into the Saving fear of God. In part three, we'll look at the sanctifying fear of God. And then in our final week, Lord willing, we'll look at the conquering fear of God. But before I preach this sermon today, we should pray together. Will you please bow your heads with me? Our Father in heaven, I thank you for the word that you've given us from you Thankful for the Holy Spirit that you have sent to help us understand. We thank you for minds you've given us to think and hearts you've given us to feel and wills that you have given us to obey. God, you have said in your word that you will put the fear of you in our hearts so that we will not turn from you. Oh God, will you put the fear of you in our hearts this morning that we would not turn from you? We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. So let me again briefly describe to you what... I see as the normative stages of God-fear in the Word and in the world. Or here is the pathway of fear in a believer. And remember as I go through these four stages of fear, that these different experiences of the fear of God are not bound to this order. Nevertheless, this is how it goes. Stage one, people do not fear God. You weren't born fearing God. I wasn't born fearing God. Some of you here today still do not fear God because it's true that people do not fear God. Man, by nature does not fear God. He is not interested in God. He is not concerned with the things of God. If he hears there is a God, he denies that it is true or he accepts it as true and hates God. Because we by nature do not fear God. And man does this. Man does not fear God because God or the idea of God is ultimately unsupportive of his self-centered life. And because God is ultimately unsupportive of my self-centered life, I don't want to have anything to do with him. So people do not fear God. Stage two. By God's grace, some men perceive the sinfulness of man and the holiness of God and then fear the judgment and wrath of God. That is first fear, it is essential fear. It is terrifying fear. And it is good, healthy, appropriate fear. It was the fear of Adam and Eve after they sinned in the garden. It is the fear that often sends you and me running from God and hiding from God and blaming others and making excuse. It is important fear. But listen, it is not enough. It is not enough. Stage three. By God's grace, some men, having perceived the sinfulness of man and the holiness of God, next, perceive the great mercy of God, which causes fear that leads to repentance and life. This fear says things to God like, have mercy on me, a sinner. This fear says things to other Christians like, what do I need to do to be saved? This fear does not drive you away from God. This fear draws you to God. It is saving fear. And that fear will be the subject of this morning's sermon in, I think, part of next week as well. And finally, stage four. So, this is a Christian now. Stage four. This is a Christian now. He is growing. He is maturing. He still fears God. He still trembles before God. And this fear of God leads to worship and awe and reverence and submission and seriousness. In fact, it is by this sanctifying fear of God that the Christian conquers every other fear. So the Christian who once did not fear God now fears nothing but God. That's what we're after. So these are the stages of God fear. That is how God willing fear develops and matures in a Christian. So let's continue down that pathway this morning. And if you haven't already, please open your Bibles to Psalm 130. We'll look at verses 1 through 4. It's on the front of your bulletin. It's the text that David read to us. Psalm 130, 1 through 4. Here in this text is saving fear in the Bible. And look with me, it is fear that is the result of perceiving God's mercy. So this is a different kind of fear, still fear of God. But it's not that terrifying fear when we perceive His judgment and His wrath. That's not the connection made here. This fear is the result of perceiving God's mercy. So let's read it again. Here it is, Psalm 130, 1 through 4. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark my iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. With you, O Lord, there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Is that right? Does that sound like a paradox to you? That sounds like a paradox to me. Is that word feared right? Shouldn't that say loved? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be loved or adored. I get when it says with you there is justice and wrath. That you may be feared. But this might at first seem paradoxical to you. With you, O Lord, there is forgiveness that you may be feared. It is saying this. You, O Lord, should be feared because you are a forgiving God. So just let that settle in. That is worth thinking about. And meditating on. You, O God, you should be feared because you are a forgiving God. So let's try and understand this. That's what I'm trying to do. Last week, remember, we set out to understand or perceive man's sinfulness and God's holiness, and it resulted in fear. But now let's set out to perceive this forgiveness the psalmist is talking about. Let's set out to perceive God's mercy and forgiveness and see if it results in fear. It should, according to Psalm 130. So let's look at forgiveness. The psalmist said, but with you, there is forgiveness. What is this forgiveness of God? And I have five things for you to consider. I want to understand this fear causing forgiveness. So here are five things about forgiveness. For us to consider. Number one, I am in need of forgiveness. And I say that in the first person because that helps me, even as I'm preaching, to feel the weight of this best. Number one, I am in need of forgiveness. My sin against God has been great. My sin against God has been terrible. The sin that I've committed against God is worse than the sin that I have committed against anyone else. And let me tell you, I've committed a lot of sin. A lot of sin. I have sinned against many people in this room. My family is here and has been sinned against by me over and over and over again. Putting myself before them. Putting my will before God's will. Over and over again. But my sin against God is worse than any sin I've ever committed against any of you. And friends, your sin against God is worse than any sin you have ever committed against anyone. John Bunyan and this famous quote about sin really helps me to get it. And I'll be honest, when I first heard it, it sounded like an overreaction. It sounded like an exaggeration. But the longer I live and the, the more I sin and the more I know God and the more I think about this, he is right on when he says about sin that sin is the dare of God's justice, the rape of his mercy, the jeer of of His patience, the slight of His power, the contempt of His love. God has been nothing but good to me over and over and over and over again. And I over and over again say, no, 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 no. I disregard Him, I disregard His will, I put myself first, I put idols first, I put other things first before God. He made me, I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for Him. I wouldn't still be here if He wasn't sustaining my life. So I owe Him everything Every breath, every drop of blood in my body, every word, every action, everything belongs to Him. And I give Him so little. And I'm a Christian. It's worse, I think. I'm a Christian. I know His love. I know His goodness. I know His mercy. He has been faithful to me. He has proven Himself. He's opened my eyes. He's opened my ears to understand truth. And I still exchange it on a daily basis for lies. That is terrible. That is unacceptable. And I can't make myself feel better by looking at all of you. I'm tempted to do that. I'm not that guy. I'm not that gal. There's always somebody worse than you. Always there's somebody worse than you. See, you can't, this can't be a relative thing. No, you are to compare yourself to Jesus Christ. He is the only one who did what God calls all of us to do. And I fail over and over. So I need to be forgiven. I'm not working that thing off. I'm not making up for it. Come on. No, I need to be forgiven. I need God to let go of my sin and not hold it against me and not punish me for it. That's what I mean when I say I am in need of forgiveness. And the big problem is that there's a verse in the Bible, Proverbs 17.15. Proverbs 17, 15 says this He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the Lord. Do you hear that truth? It says, Here are two things that are an abomination to the Lord. And I'm asking God to do one of those for me. It says that it is an abomination to the Lord to justify the wicked. And that's exactly what I'm asking God to do. I'm wicked, God. Will you somehow some way justify me? Make me right in your sight. Let my sin go. Not hold it against me. Not punish me for it. I am in need of forgiveness. Number two. Looking at this forgiveness in Psalm 130. This forgiveness of sinners is secured through the death of Jesus Christ. Oh, here is how this is possible, friends. It is possible for sinners to be forgiven. Everything that I just said is possible through Christ. At what cost are sinners like you and me forgiven? Think about this. At what cost are sinners like you and me forgiven? Forgiveness cost God his only son. That was the paid price. Forgiveness cost Christ his life. Christ satisfied justice so that pardon could be extended. How is it possible for God, this just judge, to let go of my sin and to not punish me for my sin? It is possible if Jesus comes and dies and suffers and takes the punishment in my place. I can put my faith in Him, trust Him, follow Him, and now His death counts as my death. God sees me, the Father sees me through His only Son, Jesus. Price paid, punished on the cross. So what can be extended to me? Forgiveness. Colossians 1.13 He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. That is Jesus in whom we have redemption the forgiveness of our sins. And Romans 8:32 reminds us that God did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all. If you don't spare anything, what are you going to spare? Your son? Your only son, not even his only son, did God the Father spare out of his great love for us. We actually have examples of sins and crimes being pardoned today. And I thought about this. Forgiveness is sometimes extended to convicted criminals, and they are pardoned. A governor can pardon a citizen who has been guilty of crimes against the state. The president of the United States can pardon criminals who have been convicted of crimes against the nation. And when one of those criminals is pardoned, when a pardon is extended, it is as if the crime had never been committed. They are forgiven of whatever it is they were being punished for. So I thought about this this week, and I asked, when that happens, when a a president or a governor pardons a criminal which is what God has done for me. So when a president pardons a criminal, what does it cost him? And the answer I came up with was nothing. It costs him nothing. In the end, a signature a signature, and a criminal is pardoned. What did my pardon cost God? Much more than a signature. It cost Him His only Son. It cost Jesus His life. Isaac Watts, the hymn writer, summarized this. In a hymn called, What Shall We Pay the Eternal Son? And listen to this as we consider again that this forgiveness of sinners is secured through the death of Jesus Christ. He wrote this. What shall we pay the eternal son that left the heavens of his abode and to this wretched earth came down to bring us wanderers back to God? It cost him death to save our lives. To buy our souls it cost his own. And all the unknown joys he gives were bought with agonies unknown. Our everlasting love is due to him who ransomed sinners lost. And pitied rebels when he knew the vast expense his love would cost. So number one, I am in need of forgiveness. Number two, this forgiveness of sinners is secured through the death of Jesus Christ. Number three of five, this forgiveness of sinners changes sinners. This forgiveness of sinners, it changes people. It results in much more than thankfulness. If you sin against me and I forgive you, it's not going to change who you are. You might be thankful, but when we get this Psalm 130, Forgiveness from God, it changes everything. It changes us. It's not like we learn of and know and come to believe in God's forgiveness and just say, thank you. That's really nice of you. It changes who we are. It changes everything about us. It does much more than rehabilitate us as criminals against God. It doesn't just make us fit for the streets again. It makes us fit for heaven. Our desires are changed. Our motives are changed. Our thinking is changed. Paul says to the Corinthians, you are a new creation. The old is gone. The new is come. When someone has been forgiven by God, one of the ways the Bible describes that is they have been born again. New life. A new creation. With a new heart. A new mind. New motives. New desires. Changed from the inside out. It is powerful, powerful forgiveness. Number four. This forgiveness of sinners is offered to every sinner. We don't want to just mouth that. But really consider that truth. This forgiveness of sinners that we're talking about, it is offered to every sinner. Sinner. That includes you. That includes you. That includes every sinner ever. That includes every sin committed. Some of you I know... From time to time, wonder if you are beyond God's forgiveness. And I'm so pleased to tell you, you are never beyond God's forgiveness. An ultimate price has been paid through the death of Christ. And it is able to pay for any and every sin you have committed. You're not beyond God's reach this morning. You are not beyond salvation. You are not beyond His forgiveness. I know there's been people in some of your lives who have not forgiven you. And there's been people who you have desperately want to forgive you. And they haven't. But friends, God will forgive you. He will, think about these words in Isaiah 1.18, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord, Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. Forgiveness. Finally, number five this forgiveness of sinners is only the beginning. Does that forgiveness sound great? Being forgiven of your sin against God, being forgiven of every sin you've committed, every sin you will commit against God, having that let go, not being punished for that, that is sweet forgiveness that I'm desperate for, that you should be desperate for, But listen, this forgiveness of sinners is only the beginning. Why would God forgive you of your sin? He would forgive you of your sin because He wants to adopt you as His son or as His daughter. Forgiveness is the gateway to adoption. Ephesians 1.5 He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ. Through the forgiveness of sins, God has made a way For people who are not his children to become his children. So he forgives us of our sin and lets go of our sin through Christ because he has an agenda with you and with me, he has a plan. And he had it from the beginning of time as we know it. And his plan was to set his affection on you and to rescue you and to adopt you into his home and love you forever. And so he makes a way for you to be forgiven Octavius Winslow said, If sin is pardoned, if the soul is justified, we stand in a relation to God nearer than angels and shall occupy a mansion and a throne in heaven to which Gabriel himself might in vain aspire. Whoa! That's big! I'm coming into His home and into His family. I don't belong in His family. I wasn't born in His family. I'm brought into His family. I'm brought into His home. Here's my rooms. Here's my beds. Here's my food. Here's my love. Here's my protection. Here's my affection. Forever! So there it is. That is the forgiveness of God. Psalm 130. That is the forgiveness of God. So you have, Lord willing, seen your own sin, and you've seen the holiness and the justice of God, and Now, through the words we just studied, you see the mercy of God and you see the forgiveness of God. And my question is, how do you feel? Or how do you respond to this? So that brings us back to our text. But with, verse 4, but with you there is Forgiveness, I'm in need of forgiveness. Forgiveness costs you, your son, Jesus Christ. You've forgiven me so that you could adopt me into your family forever. With you, God, there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Friends, something happens when you come to know this forgiveness. J. Gresham Machen says that that terrifying fear, I see my sin, I see His holiness, that woe is me, that terrifying fear becomes another kind of fear. That's how he wrestled with it. Another author said that He had a fear born out of love of himself. And so when he understood the holiness of God out of love for himself, he ran from God and ran away from the punishment of God. But then when he came to understand the mercy of God, he had a new fear that was not born out of love of himself, but love of God. And he ran to God. It was another kind of fear. Machen said this, even the Christian must fear God, but it is another kind of fear. And here's how he puts it. It is a fear rather of what might have been than of what is. It is a fear of what would come were we not in Christ. Without such fear, there can be no true love For love of the Savior is proportioned to one's horror of that from which man has been saved. Well, put this together with me. In short, there is a fear of God that drives you away from God. But here is a fear of God that drives you to God. There's a fear, terrifying fear that drives you away from God. And then I see his justice and mercy and this fear stops me dead in my tracks and it drives me to God, not away from him. It's like this in Psalm 31:19. We're reading this every week together this month. What is this Hear how this fear drives you to God in Psalm 31, 19. Oh, how abundant is your goodness which you have stored up for those who fear you and worked for those who take refuge in you in the sight of the children of God. There it is. The fear of God, according to Psalm thirty-one, nineteen, leads us to take refuge in God. That's driving you to God. Those who fear God take refuge in God. There is a fear that is kindled when you look at hell. There is also a fear that is kindled when you look at the cross. And that is the saving fear. There is a fear that leads you to run from God. And there is a fear that leads you to take refuge in God. God is a forgiving God. He is a sin-pardoning God. I was helped by this quote. Another one from Octavius Winslow. He also saw the apparent paradox in our text. Of forgiveness and fear. And he said it this way. There is forgiveness with you. That you may be feared. He's quoting Psalm 130. How can this be? Exclaims the unreflecting mind. Fear the fruit and effect of pardon. It is an incongruity. A paradox. And yet such is the word of God. And as such we believe and accept it. How then are we to interpret the clause? A holy, filial, loving fear of God is ever the effect of His full and free forgiveness of sin. It is the natural, spontaneous, and blessed result. All fear, if apart from a sense of pardoned sin, is legal, servile, and slavish. It is not the fear of a forgiven sinner, of a pardoned child. The pardoned soul sees in the grace of the act such a display of God's holiness and hatred of sin, such an unfolding of His grace and love as at once inspires a holy, reverential, and childlike fear of offending God. So this new fear of God is a fear of running from God. It is a fear of straying from God. It is a fear of offending God who saved me. Imagine a a child. Imagine a child who is swimming in the ocean. And this little boy has been caught in the current. He's been caught in the undertow and he finds himself hundreds of yards from the shore. And he doesn't know how to get back and he's swimming as hard as he can. But it's getting him nowhere. And he realizes that he's going to die. He's terrified. Now he doesn't know that his father saw him. And that his father is swimming harder and faster than he thought he even could. Now, the boy's surprise as he's about to go under for good. He feels this strong arm that he recognizes as Dad. And he's pulled and he's pulled and he's pulled. And he's brought up to shore. Now, that boy in that moment clings to his father like he has never clung to him before and he is still scared he's terrified his heart is pounding and i bet it's a long time before he gets up and leaves his dad's embrace fear of what almost happened Friends, this is the saving fear of God. Oh God, I was so close to being lost forever. And you rescued me, you saved me. I am so afraid of leaving you. So, in conclusion, where are you on this pathway of fear this morning? As you consider these stages of fear, where are you right now? How would you feel unarmed before a lion? How would you feel unarmed before a lion whose cub you had just killed? Do you know that this lion is also a lamb? And that you can be forgiven and saved? Do you want to be punished or do you want to be pardoned? Choose today. Choose. Have you committed yourself to Christ? If you have, or if you are now, I'd love to know that. And I hope you come tell me at the front after service. Are you so afraid of God that you run from Him? Or better, are you so afraid of God that you run to Him? Friends, fear God this morning. I'll close reading the verse that I was thinking about in my opening prayer. Jeremiah chapter 32, verse 40. God said, through His prophet Jeremiah, And I will make with them an everlasting covenant, and I will not turn away from doing good to them. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts, that they may not turn from me. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, you have been so good to us, and it is all undeserving. God, we are so thankful that you are not only a just God, but that you are a merciful God. God, I pray that, that we would all see clearly today, that we would all come to terms with our sin Uh, and see it for what it is, that we would see you for who you are, that we would know that you are a good and righteous judge, and that we are not at peace with you unless we have placed our faith in your Son, Jesus Christ. So, God, would you move among us and move in our hearts and move in our minds and teach us your ways. I pray that people who have never feared you would fear you today. And I pray for those who have forgotten your fear to know your fear today. And that it would be a fear, God, that does not drive them away from you, but a fear that drives them to you, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.